Good morning. Hey, thank you, Justin, for doing that. And I, I'm not going to repeat anything Justin said. I just want to just say uh, what a grand opportunity for us to give on December 16th. So just if you're going to get five presents, get four. And whatever that other one would have cost, bring that. All right. Uh, Kayla Sanders is going to make us a cool box. Uh, otherwise, I would cut a hole in the Nike shoe box because I got like 7,000 at my house and say, put it in there, but she's going to make a nice box and you can put it in a cool box. And this is in addition to your normal giving. Okay. This isn't like, Oh, I'm going to ax five of them. Right. Ananias and Sapphira them. Right. Like, Oh, I get my normal money, but this is, this is no, 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 don't Jesus will get you if you lie. So don't do that. You need to give all of it belongs to the Lord. We're asking you to forego the one present and give that in addition to your normal giving. Does that make sense? Don't lie to Jesus. You can lie to us. He knows. We won't know, right? So uh, how cool would it be that uh, that we could uh, we could raise enough that we match that uh, match that up and do do drops another seventy five on us, right? That'd be awesome. So let's get after it. There's enough. There's enough. And so uh, yeah. Anyway, that's enough of that. I'm gonna I'm gonna pray uh, for specifically the preaching time right now, and then uh, and get your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter nine. And, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, use your phone. If you don't have a phone, look on with somebody. Otherwise, I'll read it for you. No worries. And so uh, uh, Isaiah, I want to say Acts. I don't want to keep wanting to say Acts. But Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. So let's pray and get after it. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you help us by the ministry of Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, Jesus said you would point us to Jesus, counsel us into the truth. And so I ask that you pull that off right now, that you would... Uh, Make your word living and active. As you have inspired it uh, to be so, I pray that you would effectually, effectively make that come about right now. I pray that you would speed on ahead into our hearts. And uh, for those that need to be awakened to life, you would save. And for those that need to be counseled, you will help. And for those that need understanding, you would provide that. I trust you to pull that off right now in all the supernatural ways and normal ways you work. And so we present this request to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. We're looking at the, the, the reality of God bringing his kingdom to bear and the hope that that provides. Notes are available for you on the blog at MitchJolly.com. You can see those and walk along with me there. We're looking at Isaiah the prophet. And the prophet's role is to speak the word of the Lord. God had given them the word, the scriptures, given them the law. And the prophet's job was to represent God to the people of God and speak on behalf of God. Often the prophet spoke in regard to the situations in their context. So he was speaking in a historical setting to to the moral, ethical climate of the people. And oftentimes the prophet would be given a word from the Lord for a time beyond their historical context. Often when it was in the present, the prophet's message would be stop what you're doing and obey the Lord or God's judgment is imminent. Often the prophet would speak to the faithful of God who are suffering in the middle of this Ethical climate. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel, at one point, the Lord tells Ezekiel, I want you to look at this, son of man, and, and, and 
I've, I've got this situation going on and I'm going to send one of my angels through the city to put a mark on the foreheads of all the people who sigh, who breathe out difficulty over the moral and ethical climate of this city. And the man with the case went through and he put a mark on all the foreheads of the people who sighed at the climate of the city of God. And then the Lord sent an angel through to destroy everybody who didn't have a mark on their forehead. And he said, Ezekiel, see this because this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to preserve my people. But everybody who will not obey me, I will send them ooh, all the way out. We'll just leave it at that. Through the hand of the invading Assyrian army. And so he would speak a word to the people, repent and obey. Or to the faithful, I've got you. I know you're struggling. I know this is hard, but I know, I see, I know this is hard. Stay faithful, I got you. God speaks through the prophet to announce in advance his actual rule. We have to remember that God has never dropped the reins of his rule. God's never stopped ruling. Genesis 3 inserted a counter-temporal evil kingdom that would fight against the kingdom of God, but God has never stopped ruling. And when He speaks through the prophet, He announces His actual rule and how it will take place in spite of the opposing forces of evil and wrong that stand against Him and stand against His faithful people. Isaiah 9-7 to is the prophet's message from God to the faithful. It's his message to those who in Ezekiel have the mark on their forehead that, that represented the fact that they were the people who loved the word of God and were distraught over the climate of their situation. God's message to these faithful people is that in spite of God's judgment... On idolatrous Israel. And he will bring judgment to them. He is going to make things right. He's going to set things right. And that would produce hope in them. To stay the course. Regardless of what the current circumstance looked like. little background for you. Syria and Ephraim. Which is the northern kingdom. Are coming against the kingdom of Judah. And Assyria is beginning to threaten Syria and Ephraim. And so there's a tense political, moral, and spiritual climate. There's pending invasion from petty kings and impending invasion from large kings. And nothing is settled. Nothing is secure. And as a result, what are God's people? What are His faithful people supposed to think about this? What are they supposed to believe? What are they supposed to do in the middle of all this conflict, this unfaithfulness, and the state of their lament because things are not as they should be? Well, chapter 8 of Isaiah gives some instruction to the faithful. And it's important that we hit this before we hit chapter 9. Otherwise, chapter 9 just looks like this isolated verse 1 to 7 that we can just lift out of its context and make it say something that it doesn't really say. So, in order for us to not do that, it's important for me to let give you a little, little background that I've already done and, and help you to see what comes before in chapter 8 that God is speaking to His faithful people. He gives them a word of hope because they're in the middle of this place. And, and like most of us, we can't see the forest for the trees. The only thing we can think about is just get through today. You know, just get through today. 
and, and, and maybe we read the news or we hear the news or, or, or we think about our world around us and, and things aren't as they should be and we lament it and it's a struggle and things aren't the way they ought to be and it's hard and God sends a word to them in the middle of that situation. And the first thing he tells them in chapter 8 verse 9 to 10 is those who trust God are to know they're protected by God. He tells them here that all these people are going to come against you with armor And they're going to strap on their armor and they're going to seek to shatter you. They're taking counsel together. But he says at the end of verse 10, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. God is with us. Regardless of what they do, it will not ultimately stand because God is with us. So he encourages the faithful that although the situation is dire, don't forget God has got you. In verse 11 to 15 of chapter 8, God speaks to the faithful that those who trust God are to honor God above everything else. In this context, many people are speaking in the name of the Lord. This is one of the things the prophets always talk about. Because there are people who will speak the name of the Lord over something and God didn't send them. They've just taken the liberty to to put God on top of something, print Jesus on a t-shirt, throw the t-shirt on and say it's the Lord. And boy, we're good at that. If we can put Jesus over the top of it or say, God told me to do it, regardless of how unbiblical it is, we've we've soothed our conscience. We feel good about it. We've spiritualized it, right? And they're doing the same thing. Same exact thing. They would call Baal worship the worship of Yahweh, the worship of Asherah the worship of Yahweh. And all they did was just put Yahweh's name on top of idolatry. Jesus addressed this in the Gospels. You teach us doctrines, commandments of men. You take my law, this is honor your father and your mother, and whatever you would have honored your father and your mother with, you now designate it as an offering to God. And he said, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your own commandments. And often if you're around me enough, you'll hear me talk about putting a Christian t-shirt on top of an idol. That's what Jesus was addressing there. They took God's commandment, created their own, and nullified God's word. And it was a spiritual commandment. I mean, we're not going to honor our father and mother. We'll give it to the Lord as an offering. That sounds good, right? And Jesus said, "You, no. You've put my name on something that my name doesn't belong on. And these people were doing the same thing. And he says here, you're to honor me above everything else. Because he says in verse 12, don't call conspiracy everything this people calls conspiracy. And don't fear what they fear or be in dread. Don't be like them. They're fools. Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. And then he goes on and, and, and says some really cool stuff that the Gospels are going to quote later on. And Peter's going to quote it later about Jesus. That if anybody falls on this stone, they will be shattered to pieces. And if it falls on them, it'll crush them. This is where Peter and the Gospel writers got that from right here. Because if you don't listen to me and fear me, you're going to fall on me, the rock, and it's not going to be so good for you. So don't be like them, faithful. Don't be like them. So trust God and honor God above anything else. By the way, the fear of the Lord is never convenient. And by and large, it's usually never very practical. FYI. 
The third thing he tells the faithful in verse 16 to 20 is those who trust God are here and obey God's word. Because what you're going to find here, they're going to notice in verse 18 that uh, in 19 that these people are going to inquire now of mediums and necromancers, people who speak to the dead. They're spiritual. They're looking for spiritual means. They're looking for spiritual answers and they go to spiritual people. And verse 19 says, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? It's very sarcastic. One of the reasons I love the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, is they use sarcasm as a tool. That's not a license for you and I to use sarcasm as a means to hurt people. But there's a spiritual place for the use of sarcasm. And God does it all over the prophets, speaking through the prophets. And here's one. Because they're seeking the counsel of the dead. Should not my people seek the Lord? Why are you seeking counsel from dead people? And the implication is they can't give you any. Right? And here's what he says. To the teaching and to the testimony. Go to the word. Go to the scriptures. Right? And then he says if they will not do this, it's because they have no dawn. There's no light in them. If they won't go to the word to find the answer, it's because there's no light in them. Because they're not my people. And then the fourth thing he's going to remind them of here, and this is very important, verse 21 and 22, is that those who trust God need to understand that there's going to be dark times. It just is. It's going to be hard. He says here, uh, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously. And these are the people who don't have dawn in them. They're not his people. They'll speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And by the way, the people of God have to live in the middle of that. Uh, They're right in the middle of it, which is why they're distressed, which is why they sigh and moan over the climate of this place. And there's the background for chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. People of God, faithful, walking with the Lord, the prophet of God, speaking encouragement to them to let them know, hey, I got you, but it's going to be hard. And we see in chapter 9, verse 1 to 7, that they are to hope in God. That those who trust God are to know that He's not going to leave things the way they are. He is going to do His business, and therefore they can hope in God. So chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. Let me just read it, and then we'll go back and and, and make our observations. Chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. Which, by the way, this this is the passage that Matthew and Luke are going to quote. Remember, we come to the New Testament. New Testament authors aren't making stuff up. They're preaching from the Bible. And they're preaching from this passage in reference to Jesus' birth. Christmas. So let's see what Isaiah 9, 1-7 tells us here in regard to this great hope that the people of God have. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt or brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Wow. So to these people who are in the middle of this dark situation that, by the way, FYI, God is bringing. He's in charge of it. He's bringing the Assyrians. He's in charge of Syria and Ephraim. Because you go back to chapter 7, he tells Ahaz, who is not a good king... And this is where chapter 7, verse 14, for, right before the virgin right, gives birth. This is Matthew. He quotes Isaiah 7, 14 in regard to Mary. Right? He tells Ahaz, look, I know you're not my guy, but don't fret over these two cats that you think are a problem. They're petty. Be firm in faith or you won't be firm at all. Trust me. Obey me. I got this because I'm bringing Assyria down on them. And this, this is God that's in charge. But the people of God are in the middle of it. And they're, what are we to do? And he drops this glorious beam of light in chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. Let me show you how I got this. This isn't for Ahaz. This is for you and me. This is for Joe Dirt in the street just trying to obey the Lord. Just trying to get through today. Lord, how will you handle this? And he drops this glorious truth to hope in God. Well, here's, here's my first observation. And I want to start in verse 7 because it's a banner over this passage. How are you going to do this, Lord? I mean, the Assyrians are a big people. I mean, they're a massive nation. And they're ruthless. And they're hard. And they're difficult. And they have the best war implements in the world. Well, Lord, how are you going to pull this off? Right? Well... The Lord tells them at the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How is God going to take care of his people? He's going to do it by his zeal. This word zeal is absolutely, gloriously amazing. It's a cognate of another word that God uses in the law to describe himself as jealous. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. All right? Now, we hear jealous and we think sinful jealousy. We don't hear God's passion for his people solely. A guarding, fiery, protecting passion for his people. I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. Here's a cognate, zealous. This word zealous means similarly, as a husband is jealous, that is, have a soul desire for his wife. The state of ill will raging even to anger. This is, by the way, this is why Christian theology is the king of all disciplines. 
don't read on to God things that aren't true. He is zealous and he even gets angry. Anger is not a sin. This is why Paul will tell people, be angry and do not sin. God gets mad. So this word zealous is even a state of ill will, raging even to anger or deep devotion. Now, I I debated on whether or not to give you this one, but there's an Arabic cognate to this word. You guys know what a cognate is? It's an equivalent. It's another linguistic equivalent. Go Google cognate. Google is a great tool. Use the Google. You can learn a lot of things in the Google. Not everything that just, you know, that if they put it on the internet, it's got to be true. That's, you know, that's a joke, right? You know, just because it's on interwebs doesn't mean it's true. So you have to use a little discernment, dictionary.com, Google, find out what cognate is. It's another linguistic equivalent, right? So Arabic and Hebrew share some cognates. They're similar, okay? You probably didn't come here for that lesson. I'm a linguist guy. Sorry, had to do it to you. But here we go. The cognate in Arabic is beautiful because it means to be red-faced. You know what happens when somebody's red-faced? They're fired up. They are passionate. That same word is used in Isaiah 42, 13 when it says, The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, He stirs up His zeal. He's stirring His zealousness. And He cries out, He shouts aloud, He shows Himself mighty against His foes. Here's what I kept thinking as I was reading this passage. The, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's hyped. He's flat out Hyped. And what's hyping him? His love for his people. You're my people. And there is no way that I don't got you. We got to get hyped by putting on my beats. You know, I got my beats, my power beats three. And the way I walk up to that heavy bar is I'm throwing down a little GNR. And it's busting. And I'm feeling the adrenaline flowing. My face is getting red and hype's happening. Right? God doesn't need GNR to get hyped. He doesn't need turned down for what? He's hyped over his people. He's red-faced. And so, Lord, how are you going to rescue us from this deep, dark place? My zeal, that's how. I'm a red-faced warrior for my people. Listen, God fights for his people. He fights for his people. And he says, how am I going to do this? I'm going to do this like a warrior stirring up his zeal. God is rousing himself to powerfully work for his people. That's how he's going to do it. Right? But what's he going to do? Well, we see this here. Second observation we see in verse 1 to 3. God is going to bring relief where there was distress. He's going to bring spiritual light where there was spiritual darkness. He's going to bring salvation where there was condemnation. And he's going to bring multiplication where there was subtraction. We see here that in these latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. These northern places that he's speaking about are going to be the places that the Assyrians are going to come and set up camp in their false gods. And they're going to stage the invasion of the southern kingdom from these places. And many people are going to marry in and begin to worship the false gods. And God in his zeal says, this is what's about to happen. But you, here's what I got for you. This place that used to be dark, I'm going to make it a place of light. This place that was spiritually devoid, I'm going to make it spiritually alive. There was condemnation, I'm going to bring salvation. 
people died and were subtracted, but I'm going to grow the kingdom there. So God promises that He's going to reverse everything that was dark in His zeal. Number three, verse four, God's going to bring victory in an unlikely manner in order to show that it's by His power. Right? We see in verse four here that the yoke of His burden... And the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What's that? You got to go back to the book of Judges. And you're reading the book of Judges about. Anybody know? Anybody know? You read about Gideon. Right? And you're going to read that God is going to rescue his people by the hand of Gideon and his warriors. But you also read in that story that Gideon had too many people. Because the Lord told Gideon, if you win this war, and you will, and you do it with that 32,000, you're going to think you did it. So start by telling all the people that are afraid to go home. And some went home and he still left with a lot of people. And God says, still too many people. Go down to the water and y'all drink. And the people who drink it like a dog, keep them. And Gideon's left with 300 people. And he breaks them up into... Three bands of a hundred. And three hundred people rout thousands. And it was shown on that day that it is the Lord who rescues his people. Here in verse 4, we learn that God is going to bring victory in an unlikely manner in order to put on display that it is the Lord who does it, not them. Because we're all still sinners and we have a tendency to think if we deliver ourselves, we had a hand in it. Which is why the Bible continues to tell us, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord, lest you think you did it. Wait on the Lord, it's not you, it's the Lord. So he's going to bring this in an unlikely manner. We're going to see that in just a second. Hang tight with me. We're going to see the fourth thing here in verse 5. Is God's going to destroy the forces of evil. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Because remember, war's happening. War's breaking out. And God says, I'm going to reverse everything. going to do it in an unlikely manner. And all this evil, this war, I'm going to abolish. He is going to destroy evil. And it says here, they're going to be rolled up and burned as fuel for the fire. God's going to burn up evil. The fifth observation we see here in verse 6 and 7 is that God is going to bring His kingdom to victory through a king. An unlikely king. Right? Remember that unlikely source? For to us a child is born. God chose not to raise up a full-grown warrior. God chose to bring a child. This unlikely source is going to come through a king. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. In other words, he will be a king, and he will have governmental rule. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And I just got to tell you, it's like killing me to not just launch into doctrine of the kingdom of God right now. We'll do that in January. But it has absolute effect on how you live today. We'll get to that in just a second. I'm not going to go completely down that rabbit hole. But got to introduce it. Right? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God's going to bring his kingdom to victory through a king. And the sixth and final observation, and here's where we get into the meat of the text, and it's not going to take long, so hang with me. According to Matthew and Luke, Isaiah 9, 1-7 is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. According to them, this passage is completely fulfilled in Christ. He's the promised one. His kingdom is the one that is established and is currently increasing. God is zealously working to keep His people. Look at the providence of God in making Christmas even come about. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How did He do this? Hey, Joseph. Yeah. Oh, this is weird. What? Yeah. Get up and go to Egypt. Hmm. Take your family. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And, and God weaves together this incredible narrative of putting this dude and this virgin who's never been married with the guy she's betrothed to. And by the way, she's pregnant now. And her likely story is Holy Spirit. And he's like, am I supposed to believe this? What? Um, okay. And so they go down and all this stuff takes place. God weaving together history in his zeal. Him zealously working to keep his people. The light of the world was brought into the world in this northern place because in Bethlehem on this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God the Father sent Jesus the Son to be born in these places where the Assyrians set up idolatry and people capitulated in order to bring light from darkness. And by the way, in Jesus' day, they were still struggling from the relational and ethical and ethic ethnic divide created during this time. And they called them the Samaritans. And in the middle of this place where these people were despised, the Lord sent His Son to set up shop there. And by the way, side note, it's because Jesus isn't just for the in group. He's for all groups and intends to bring his kingdom over all of them. So he set up shop in the one that the in group thought was least likely. And, and just also, side note, to keep his word because that's what he said he was going to do. Jesus is born in this place and it's almost like God's taunting the enemy. You've set up darkness. I'm going to birth in light. Watch me. You've brought division, I'm going to bring unity. You've created difficulty, I'm going to heal it. Remember, the gospel writers are telling a history of what has already happened because Jesus has lived, died, rose, and ascended and sent the Holy Spirit and the salvation has come, the kingdom has come, and they're recounting it for us. So they're studying the scriptures going, this has been fulfilled in Jesus. God has brought victory from what the world considered weakness. A child, a young couple, poverty, no place to stay, no place of influence, not considered as significant. That's Jesus. Like Gideon, so that you will know it's not you, it's me. I'm going to do this in the most lowly of ways. So that you will know it's not you, it's me. We see here that God has effectively defeated evil by the cross of Jesus Christ. He has defeated, as we see in verse 5, 
He's going to burn up the forces of evil. We see in the New Testament that God has defeated evil by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, God has kept his word and he has burned up the forces of evil through the death, burial, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And we see that the kingdom of God has come via the king of the universe. The child is born, the son is given and the government rests on his shoulders. And he's a wonderful counselor, not a torturer. He is mighty God, not some demonic idol. He's the everlasting good father. He is the prince of peace. And his government won't decrease. It will only increase. There will be no end to it. And he will sit on the throne of David, a global kingdom. And he will establish it and uphold it. And he will do it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And by the way, this is the New Testament authors are going to pains to show you that what God has said He would do, Jesus has accomplished all of it. So let's jump into some applications real quick. I'm doing pretty good. We've got four minutes and eight seconds. Should only take ten minutes. We're good. Applications. I'm going to keep these rather general because I have a fear sometimes, just to be frank with you for a moment. Sometimes when you hear some of the same things over and over again, you get numb to hearing them and you just assume I'm going to say that stuff. And sometimes you need a break. So I'm, I'm not going to get super specific. I'm going to keep it very broad. Because here's what I prayed this week, that the Holy Spirit would take these truths and massage them down into your soul into places where he would speak to you about repentance and obedience. And I'm not saying you're like, none of us are in gross sin. I'm saying repentance is the life of the believer. It characterizes my life. I daily repent. If you're not daily repenting, you're not walking with Jesus. Okay? So, So my prayer is that he would take these truths and massage them down individually to all of us to bring about repentance where it needs to happen in all of us. So number one, application, believe, believe, and belief is the foundation of action. I wrote this in my notes, so I'm not rabbit trailing. Belief is the foundation of action. If you say you believe something and do nothing about it, you don't believe it. In the Bible, belief and action are inseparable. Okay, so just let the Holy Spirit deal with you on that. Because I had a list of things. I made a hundred. And then I thought, they, you're meddling. They will get mad. Nasty email. Facebook post. Twitter. Passive aggression. All the things that happen to preachers. Right? I was coming. So I thought, you know what? It's Christmas. I don't want any of that. So, <laughs> belief and action go hand in hand. Hand in glove. Hammer nail. Socks and shoes. Right? It, they go together. All right? If we say we believe something, we don't act on it, we don't really believe it. So, I want us to believe that in the coming of Jesus, God has begun the invasion of the dark kingdom and is keeping His word. Now, hang with me. Christmas 
Now, some of you, if you don't know World War II, I'm going to lose you here, and I'm sorry. But if you don't know World War II, do your history. You need to be educated. All right, so Christmas is our D-Day. It marks the beginning of a conflict that will end all conflicts. Christmas is the cosmic conflict that the prophets speak about in the Old Testament. Easter's our VE and VJ day. It's the day that victory is declared finally and forever. And every day since in history has been God's people telling this story of the gospel to the world that victory belongs to us and God has kept his word with the invitation to join in that kingdom through repentance and faith in the king, Jesus. We live now in an age of realizing what has already been secured. Listen to me very carefully. There is nothing to come that needs to be fulfilled. It's all been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and sending the Holy Spirit. Two examples. Acts 2.16. Luke is quoting Joel in the mouths of Peter as he's preaching. He's quoting Joel, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And he tells them here that all of these passages are fulfilled in this moment. Meaning there's nothing left in the text to be fulfilled. They are fulfilled. Acts 13, 32 to 33 reminds us that what God promised to the fathers in the Old Testament, He fulfilled by raising Jesus. Which is why the New Testament authors tell us that at that moment we are in the last days. The last days aren't in the future. You're in them. The kingdom has come. The king has come. Jesus, when he was born and lived his life on this earth, established that day he put down his foot and said, the end is near. He established his kingdom and he gave everything necessary to finish the task, which is why Isaiah will say in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there's no end. When Jesus came, he began advancing his rule. It's increasing daily and there will be no end to it. He says to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, which is why as Christians, followers of King Jesus, we care about justice. The gospel of the kingdom cares about justice for all people and righteousness. That right and justice for all people would be done in the name of Jesus. Because it's Jesus working it out in his zeal to establish his rule over everything broken in Genesis 3. Jesus' kingdom is real. It's tangible. It's increasing. And listen to this. Heaven. Listen, this is important. This affects us right now. Remember I said, if, if, if you say you believe it and don't do it, you don't believe it. Listen, heaven is real and tangible. And it's not some Platonic Greek separated state up in the sky somewhere. We've even taught our children bad theology when it comes to heaven. Heaven for us is somewhere out in the sky somewhere. The Bible never teaches that. That's Plato. That's Greek philosophy. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jesus, Revelation. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is in our midst. Jesus said, if I, they accused him of casting out demons by Satan. And Jesus said, 
if I cast them out by Satan, who are your sons casting them out by? But if I cast them out by the Spirit, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And Jesus said, the kingdom is in our midst. I have come. My rule is now. Meaning heaven's not somewhere out there. It is right here, right now, and his government is increasing. Meaning, meaning that we have a role to work with Jesus in securing this world back underneath his rule. Which is why we teach KDSC. That the gospel of the kingdom makes disciples who function in the world and their domains of society. Making disciples and fixing what's broken. And it is war. It is hard. It's difficult. And you engage things that you may never see the conclusion of them. You may die never having seen it fulfilled. But it's worth the fight because we're fighting on the side of the king. There were men and women who died in World War II who never saw the surrender of Germany and Japan. But the sacrifice was worth it. Many of us may die and never see Jesus fulfill everything he promised us. But the fight will be worth it because of the increase of his government. There will be no end. We talk about the kingdom of heaven, right? When we die, all the Bible says is we're with Jesus. And it leaves it at that. We've created this weird platonic other thing, right? And listen, when Jesus returns and caps everything off, he's going to raise us up. And heaven is right here. Revelation 21, read it. Which is why what you do on a daily basis matters. Which is why your vocation is holy. Which is why we don't isolate ourselves from the world, but we engage the world with this news that there's been a king. And he's established his rule. And right now, in this place, he is working to save you and fix all that's broken. Preach that. Listen, you know what the problem with Three Rivers Church is? And the problem with the churches in the West? Is we don't make disciples. We have services. And we feel bad if people don't show up for the entertainment. Feel like we failed. Light attendance, right? Failure. No. No. This time is not for your entertainment. It's for equipping to leave here and go make disciples. You tell this story, there's a king. And listen, if you need some help, go read the Chronicles of Narnia. They're children's stories. They'll help you. There's a king. And you can call him Aslan if you want to. Jesus, Just get to Jesus at some point. Right? Just as in as Jesus in this story. Get to Jesus. But there's a king and his rule is coming. And what we do, I know, is hard. But Jesus even likes to work inside the government, government employee. And one day he's going to bring this office underneath his rule. You believe that? No, I don't. Well, I'm going to keep telling you about it. He wants to save you too. Do that tomorrow. And I guarantee you might be shocked at the Lydia's that are there. Realizing that there's something missing. And all of a sudden you have the story. And they're birthed into the kingdom. Next thing you know you're working on a small group in your workplace. Which is the church by the way. Don't want to freak you out. But that's how it happens. Right? If, if we say we believe it. We have to do it. Does that make sense? 
The king has come. Little baby Jesus, eight pound, six ounce, or whichever one it is, six pound, eight ounce, baby Jesus has come, but he is a full grown king and he rules this world and has called us as agents of his kingdom to go do something about it. Do you believe the increase of his government will have no end? That right now in this place, maybe he's advancing his rule in your heart as we speak. Maybe tomorrow as you clock in, just a little bit more ground is taken. Are you doing justice and righteousness in your workplace? Are you righteous? Because your righteousness is key to people seeing the rule of Jesus over you. If you're unrighteous in your workplace, there's no rule of Jesus visible in your life. And so when you start talking Jesus and there's no rule of Jesus over you, you've shamed Jesus. But if the increase of his rule knows no end, they see you growing in grace. They see you growing in Christ. That's how we make disciples. Is we live it, we speak it, he supernaturally saves. And of the increase of his government, there's no end. So Christians, that was, a lo- that was long, sorry. Believe. Believe that. If we believe it, can we please do it? Listen, I know we're in a hard place where everybody's saved. Just go have a conversation with somebody. You're Christian. Yeah, man. Why are you on the meth? I don't know. I got saved in Bible school when I was three. Or I've always been a Christian. Oh, God. Right? It's just, you're gonna, this is Rome, Georgia. That's what you're going to run into. It's hard. You hear me, people around me joke, and it's easier to work in Afghanistan than it is here. It's more dangerous, but at least you know what team you're on. Like, it's clear sides. It's clear, you know, it's clear what we believe. Here, yeah, man, I believe that. Try it. I promise you, go to Starbucks, Swift and Fence. Find the first person you don't know tomorrow and ask them about Jesus. You will find agreement. But start sounding the depth of where they are with Jesus. And you'll discover they have a theology but no power because they don't know the king. They're like these people in chapter 8. They're consulting all manner of spirituality with Jesus as a t-shirt on top of their life. And the truth is most of you in this room will confess until you met Jesus you were just like him. Because I was. I called Jesus until I met him at the age of 20. Why, why was it 20 years old before I met Jesus or heard the gospel in Romans Ford County? You tell me why. Right? Let's have a form of godliness with no power. So Christian, believe the kingdom is coming. Don't isolate yourself, but engage. Start making disciples. It's messy. There's no formula. There's no 10 steps to successful disciple making. It's hard. It's ugly. It's like everybody's going to have a different story. And, and your process ain't going to work with mine or the people I work with. It's just not. And you're going to need to go to the manual, to the testimony, right? To the teaching and the testimony. Jesus, I need some instruction. Holy Spirit, help me right now. All right, that's, this is your last application, then I'm done. You're like, God, that was too long. Will he shut up? Here it is. Here we go. Last application. Wait for the Lord in faith. Wait for him in faith. As you engage in Roman Floyd County, wait in faith. I'll just be honest with you. There, it comes across my mind a hundred times a day, just quit, get out of here. This is awful. Texas was easier. This is home. I was born and raised here. But it's easier in other parts of the country. And at least daily, a hundred times I'm going, why are you still here? Why are you still here? Why, why did you, God, you, you were at Northwood. I mean, some of you guys have been Northwood with me. Like, why did you leave there? Like, what were you doing? This is crazy. Awful place. <laughs> it's difficult. <laughs> 
Listen, man, Rome chews up its finest. If you've been here long enough, you know, Rome chews up its finest. This is a spiritually difficult place. But three rivers, Mitchell Jolly, all of us, let's wait for the Lord in faith. By wait, we don't mean do nothing. We mean biblical waiting. Which means faithfully trusting in and obeying the Lord in spite of how things appear. That's what they were called to do. This is hard, but here's what I'm going to do. Now here's where it gets tough. Between the time of Isaiah writing chapter 9 verse 1 to 7 and it coming to fulfillment in Matthew 4, 15 and 16, you want to take a stab at how many years? 700 and some change. Meaning the people who received this word never saw it. The Assyrians came. A lot of people died. And a lot of people were taken captive into slavery. That's how they ended their life. And yet we have this weird instant society that says, if I'm not making six figures by the time I'm 25, or Jesus hadn't answered all my prayers by the time I'm 23... We've got this weird thing going on where somehow if God doesn't answer me tomorrow, He hasn't been faithful. And we quit. We know maybe not even praying at all. 700 years and some change. Meaning, Three Rivers Church, we may never see the day we have a stitch of anything to call our own. Was that what we were doing it for? Are we here to advance the rule of Jesus? Are we here for us or for Jesus? Because of the increase of His kingdom and His government, there will be no end. There's a life cycle to this church. And Lord willing, I'll be dead when it dies. But there's no church at Ephesus, is there? No church at Philippi. One day, there will be no Three Rivers Church. But of the increase of His kingdom and His government, there will be no end. You see, the reality is we may never see our names and lights. And there may never be a popular podcast or books written. But the question for us is, will we wait on the Lord in faith to build His kingdom, not ours? Will we wait on the Lord to build His work, not ours? Will you wait on the Lord to do His thing, not what you want Him to do? See, God's not a manipulable little petty deity. He is the king of the universe. We are his creatures. He is the creator. And so for us, where we find life and joy is getting ourselves up underneath his good sovereign hand and rolling with his direction, not our own. The most frustrating thing in life is to push back against the immovable hand of God. You will not win. As he said in chapter 8, those who fall on this stone and stumble on it will be broken. Don't push against the hand of God. Roll with him. Will we wait in faith? Because we live in this age of already, not yet. The kingdom has come in reality, but it hasn't been fully, fully established. And we wage a war with the gospel to see the ruling King Jesus enthroned in all peoples in every nation across this planet. The faithful of Isaiah's day would not see this promise fulfilled in their time, but they would faithfully endure regardless. As Eugene Peterson said in the title of his book, 
we need a long obedience in the same direction. I want that to characterize my life, a long obedience in the same direction. I've even this week thinking, I think I want that on my, st- my headstone. A long obedience in the same direction. Will we wait on the Lord? Because King Jesus has come. And he will keep his word. Which is why the first Sunday of Advent is all about hope. Hope. Will you hope in the Lord even when it looks like there's no hope? That's what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. And then, uh, I don't know about you, but I think it's kind of worth worshiping him. He will keep his word. And even if he hadn't kept it up to this point, you can promise he will keep it. And for most of us in this room, he's been faithful enough to give him a little praise. Okay? So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do great things even as we worship you. We want to give you praise. We want to give you honor. We want to worship you rightly. So help us to do that well. Um, Holy Spirit, we trust that. Yeah, we trust that you're working that in our hearts even now. You're working that out in our hearts even now. Lord Jesus, let us taste for a few minutes the increase of your government over us in this room. It's easy to talk about the increase of your rule outside of here, but Lord, I want you to rule us even in this room in the next 5, 10, 15 minutes. Lord, I don't want to control anything. Holy Spirit, I want you to be in absolute charge. So in whatever way that we would put up a a barrier to keep you from moving in us, would you wreck that? Would you tear it down? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would sovereignly speak to every heart just like every heart needs to hear. And I pray that you would destroy unbelief, resistance, and that you would bring about the obedience of faith. Lord, where there needs to be hope, give it. Where there needs to be fire and a prodding, provide it. Where there needs to be obedience, make it happen. But make us submissive as we sing to you. I'm reminded in Acts 13, as they worshiped the Lord and fasted, you took Antioch and you ravaged the nations with disciples. So Lord, as we I don't think any of us are fasting, but as we worship, Holy Spirit, would you be pleased to speak? Just like you did at the church at Antioch. Speak and be effective in your speaking, we pray in